Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where we explore timeless principles, practices, and strategies to live a good life. We engage in insightful conversations with philosophers, leaders, psychologists, and everyone in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom for everyday life. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Greetings and welcome. I am Joshua. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, my guest is Donald Robertson, the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Donald is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and the author of six books. I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy and in particular Donald's writing. This is a great book and I believe you will enjoy the conversation. In the episode, we discuss the life of Marcus Aurelius, Stoic practices and exercises, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the wise and gracious Donald Robertson. Donald Robertson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. All right, great. So, you're a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, a prolific writer on Stoicism, philosophy as a way of life. In your most recent book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, explores the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. It's a fantastic read and listen. The audible version is great. I really enjoyed it. And to begin the conversation, would you mind giving us some insight into uh, what led you to write How to Think Like a Roman Emperor? Gosh, let me think what the abbreviated version would be. And basically, my publisher asked me to write an introductory book on Stoicism. And How to Think Like a Roman Emperor is my fifth book, if I remember rightly. So anyway, I'd already written a book called Stoicism and the Art of Happiness and other things a bit like that. And there were lots of other introductory books on Stoicism coming out. So I thought... I'd like to write another book in Stoicism, but I don't want to just do exactly the same thing again. So I always ask myself, how can I answer yes and no to this question? Can I do it, but not do it? I'll do it in a roundabout way. I'll do it in a different way. So I thought, what's the yes and no answer to this? Would you write an introductory book in Stoicism? And I thought maybe the way to do it is to write a book about a famous Stoic and use them as a role model. I also asked myself, how would the Stoics teach stoicism and i thought they tend to refer to exemplars and role models they talk about how the best way to learn about stoicism is by looking at people that have actually put it into practice but one of marcus aurelius's meditations is an extended meditation on role models and their character traits and and virtues and so on so i think the stoics would agree with me that this is the right way to approach it i thought well at first i could write about zeno the founder of stoicism there's some good anecdotes about him but i thought There aren't enough anecdotes. We don't know enough about him. And then I thought, if only, if only there was some Stoic that was like a big deal back in the day about whom, you know, maybe there would be some history written and whatnot. And then I thought, hang on a minute, I'm looking at the whole thing back to front. Let's not look at the first Stoic. Let's look at the last famous Stoic of antiquity, which is Marcus Aurelius, he's a Roman emperor. I think a lot of people don't realize that we know so much about Marcus. There are three main Roman histories of his reign that survive. We have a whole cache of private letters between him and his rhetoric tutor. And we have a bunch of other fragmentary references. We've got some archaeological evidence and evidence from coins and inscriptions and stuff like that. So because he's an emperor, we have way more information than we would 
normally have about any other philosopher. So it's easier to, to write about him. And so I, I started writing about him. Um, and also I have a nine-year-old daughter who I guess was like six or something when I first started doing that. And I, I'd been telling her a lot of stories about, she said, daddy, daddy, tell me a story a lot. I'd be like, ah, I'll try to think of a story. I'd come up with something. I started to rack my brains. I came up with stories from Greek mythology. And then you guess what happened? I ran out of stories that I knew from Greek mythology that were suitable for six-year-olds. She said, Daddy, tell me a story. And I was like, well, there was this guy called Diogenes the Cynic. And, and then there was this guy called uh, Socrates. He was a philosopher. What's a philosopher, Daddy? Like, and so we got in these conversations that went on for hours. And I thought, geez, if my wee six, seven, eight-year-old daughter can understand these stories, then maybe you know they're pretty generic and like most adults will find them relatable as well you know i always think with philosophy if we want to reach a wider audience we can't simplify it enough really like the simpler the more engaging we can make it and then it also occurred to me that one of our main sources especially for the stoics is a book which you may have heard of called the lives and opinions of eminent philosophers by diogenes laertius and it's a strange book historians philosophers classicists find it hard to kind of categorize it it's not exactly a history it's got a lot of stuff opinions in it and lives it's got a lot of gossip in it and weird little anecdotes and bits of poems and stuff so it's like a scrapbook in a way of anecdotes and, and gossip and stuff about these characters but people learned philosophy in antiquity not just from lectures and dialogues and essays, as we might think today, but from plays and anecdotes about famous philosophers. And there are lots of them that survive, but we don't teach philosophy today in that way. And I thought maybe we could kind of revive that a bit because in this day and age, you know, a lot of people don't go to university to study philosophy, but nevertheless, they're really interested in how it might benefit them. So we need to make it engaging once again for the, the, the general public. And that, those were all the reasons that inspired me to write the book in the way that I did, basically. I love that. Thanks. When you kind of look at Marcus's life, what, what would you say are some of the best examples of him embodying this Stoic philosophy? That's a difficult question, actually, at first glance because the historians aren't particularly interested in stoic philosophy and how he applies it that seems odd to us today because we would think that's what we want to know how is he doing stoicism in practice but herodian cassius dio and the author of uh, the historia augusta don't they couldn't really care less about that and they describe his reign but without much reference it. They talk about who his Stoic teachers were and things like that, but they, they don't really talk about how Stoicism influenced him very much. But there are kind of a handful of notable exceptions. And sometimes if you look very closely as well, you can kind of notice things that are a bit hidden in the in the histories that aren't obvious at first. You think, hang on a minute, that seems kind of strangely Stoic. But there is one relatively clear big example, and that's in Cassius Dio's Historia Romana, where he actually describes a speech that he attributes to Marcus Aurelius. Now, Roman history is notoriously sketchy and unreliable and biased. The Roman historians either really love you or they really hate you. 
they tend to portray either idealize emperors or demonize them. So there's a lot of kind of exaggeration and gossip and stuff. And some of them in particular, often when they report speeches and letters, they kind of don't have the air of authenticity about them. They, there are details in them that are historically inaccurate and, and things. So we don't know if this speech is verbatim what Marcus said. Although also you could say it would be kind of surprising if Dio wrote this and it was just completely contrary to what everybody knew to be the case. Would he get away with completely fabricating this? Because it would have been famous. So Marcus was facing a civil war. Again, I, I, I probably can't go through the whole backstory of it, but the, the gist of it is he did something really remarkable. The war was at the other side of the empire, so the news would take weeks by courier to get across the empire. And Marcus was in the northern frontier, so the news got to Rome first, and the Senate heard the news, and they kind of freaked out, had a knee-jerk reaction, panicked, and made things worse, basically. And then probably been a couple of weeks or something before the news then got to Marcus at Sirmium. He gave a speech to the legions there, and he did kind of the opposite of what the Senate had done. He began by pardoning everybody that was involved in instigating the civil war. So he said, we're going to mobilize our army and we're going to march against them. Like, we're probably going to have to, but I'm pardoning everyone involved. Like, And then he gave, the reason he gives is, is kind of very stoic and very Socratic. He says, I'm going to assume that they did this on the basis of some kind of mistake or misinformation. Like he says, I, I'm going to assume the guy doing it believed that I died because I, I think he'd nearly died. He was sick a lot. And he, he said, I'm, I'm going to assume this is some kind of mistake on his part. And I'm going to give him a chance to stand down. And so he applies stoicism in a number of ways that we can see him describing in the in the meditations. And, you know, as it happened, weirdly, that ended the civil war with minimal bloodshed because the guy's officers, Avidius Cassius was the rebelling general's name, his officers thought, we're not really that keen on fighting this massive loyalist army of veterans from the Danube region. They kind of went, looked around and they thought, well, he's pardoned all of us and, and we believe Marcus Aurelius, right? I mean, if some other emperor had said that, we'd think, yeah, sure, buddy. But like Marcus Aurelius doesn't tell lies. We believe him. And they thought, we could all just go home and kind of call this off before we all get slaughtered and stuff. But there was one guy that didn't want to call it off, and that was Ovidius Cassius. So he was ambushed by his officers, and they cut his head off and delivered it to Marcus in a bag and said, this is the one guy that didn't want to call the war off. We've dealt with that. The rest of us, we will accept the pardon. Thanks very much. And can we all go home now? And so that, that was the end of it. You know, there were a couple of other people that died, but essentially it was mainly one person that died in that civil war and only lasted a few months. So Marcus managed to avert the, the fragmentation potentially of the, the empire. And he did it paradoxically by pardoning everybody that was involved, although that led to the, the death of the guy that had instigated it. I found it fascinating in in reading your chapter on anger and kind of those 10, 10 notes from Marcus Aurelius, how closely kind of that aligned. Would you mind kind of expounding upon kind of his thoughts on, on anger and I guess kind of that generous assumption that he was mm -hmm. making? He thinks anger, um, all Stoics think that anger is a desire for revenge. There's a lot of validity to that way of looking at it. I mean, there are different types of anger. We use that term loosely to refer to a range of emotions. But I think that's, generally speaking, they kind of hit the nail on the head. That was a very common theory of anger in the ancient world. 
And Socrates has the best argument about this. Like most Socratic arguments, it's not 100% convincing, but once you've heard it, you can't unhear it. And then for the rest of your life, you'll go, like, maybe there's some truth in that weird thing Socrates said. So I'll tell your listeners what he says. It's stunningly simple. So Socrates says to his friends, look, when you want to hurt people, when you want to get revenge on people and harm them, are you trying to make them better or worse? And his friends say, well, when you're harming people, you, you make their condition worse, you make them worse. Socrates says, why would you want to make your enemies even worse than they are already? Wouldn't it be better to try and improve them and turn them into allies rather than enemies? In which case, your fundamental attitude should be one of trying to help your enemies. And this is the, the argument he presents in book one of Plato's Republic, his famous paradoxical argument that justice, the Greeks believe that justice consists in helping your friends and harming your enemies. Many people believe that. I've got a good example of that actually from, there's a tape recording of Richard Nixon, of all people, saying that about the US tax office. He says he wants them to help his friends and harm his enemies. He's quoting this ancient Greek definition of justice that Socrates fundamentally disagrees with and tackles head on in book one of Plato's Republic. So Socrates comes to this paradoxical conclusion that justice consists in helping our friends and helping our enemies because he thinks the most important thing in life is wisdom and we wouldn't want to harm people with regard to wisdom. We'd want to give them more wisdom because the wise are the friends of the wise he believes, and so we, you know, if we were all wise, we'd be living in, in peace and harmony, he believes. So he thinks we should be educating people and trying to reform and enlighten them, not trying to hurt their feelings, for example. The way that people harm each other today, predominantly, isn't by, luckily, like murdering each other, although that happens. It's mainly by trying to hurt each other's feelings, which people do all the time on the internet, mainly. That's their kind of go-to thing. So somebody will get annoyed and they'll kind of have a dig or they'll insult or put somebody down and I'll just try and get at them and hurt their feelings or whatever. And in doing that, they make the other person angry. The other person wants to get back and hurt the first person's feelings. And that ends up in this kind of spiral of death or you know escalating flame war where each person is trying to provoke the other person into anger more and more, which if you look at it from the sidelines, just seems like a ridiculously pointless game to play. You're making the, your enemy, this aggressor, into more and more of an aggressor. Like, how is that helping? Socrates was spot on with regard to examples like that, at least. He was like, you know the person that's attacking you, you're making them want to attack you even more. Why would you do that? Wouldn't it make sense to do the complete opposite? So Marcus says the best form of revenge, his little shorthand version of this paradox, he says that this is how we should change the desire for revenge. He says the best form of revenge is to be unlike the other person. In other words, the best form of revenge would be to be not angry because they want you to be angry. And the best form of revenge would be to be the opposite of angry. That would be to be empathic and compassionate like generous towards other people so that you don't allow them to turn you into as much of an idiot as they're being, basically. So this is one of the Stoic principles. I think you asked me about this other Socratic paradox, though, that's kind of related to that, which is Socrates says no man does evil knowingly, and therefore a consequence of that is that no man does evil willingly. And that's everybody's kind of favourite Con Socratic controversy. So Marcus just lifts this directly from Socrates. Like a lot of Stoicism is derived from Socrates. 
I mean, I don't know if I have time to un- unpack that fully here or if I even could do it satisfactorily. But to be clear, I'll deal, I'll deal with the easiest objection to it. So a lot of people will go, look, people all the time do things that are bad and antisocial and unjust on purpose. But that's true. They do things that they know other people think are bad and unjust, but they don't necessarily believe themselves that those things are intrinsically wrong. They might not think that they're good or right. They might just think they're trivial or indifferent. So what criminals or antisocial people will often say is, I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't think it was doing something evil or unjust. And Marcus says quite rightly that if you confront people over their behavior and say, what you did was wrong, buddy, it was totally unjust. People usually get annoyed and they'll be offended. And he says, there's a clue that they don't actually believe that what they're doing is wrong. And actually, if you think of the worst people in history, the genocidal dictators, um, the Stalins and the Hitlers, you pause to think about this for a minute, probably more than anyone else, they believed very firmly that what they were doing was justified and right. And that's partly what makes them so scary and dangerous. They believed what they were doing was justified. That the, those people are the, the really dangerous ones. So Socrates is saying, when you think about it like that, the people, the aggressors, you should be viewing them as misguided more than just malicious. They're making errors of moral judgment. And when you perceive it like that, in a way, it, it tends to make us generally less angry with them. But it also gives us a, a way of coping. It allows us to think maybe there's ways that we could enlighten or educate or reform them. Sometimes that might be impossible, but there might be other instances where we can do it at least to some degree. Whereas if you believe that someone is just a bad person doing bad things, then it's hard to know what you would do except eliminate them completely. But if you think somebody's doing bad things because they're emotionally disturbed and they're misguided and they don't know how to handle their feelings and they're disillusioned with life and stuff like that, you might think maybe there's way an opportunity to show them another way and reform them. I guess as I'm saying that, I'm reminded one of my first jobs was working with young offenders. And so I think particularly when you're working with young people, even though they've often done quite terrible criminal things, they're on probation, for example, and maybe they've done horrible things that really hurt other people. But nevertheless, if you spend a lot of time talking to them and counselling them, you kind of get to understand what their thinking is and how they got to the place that they're in. And suddenly it doesn't seem as simple. Of course, the thing that they did is still bad and you need to prevent them from harming other people. But you can see opportunities maybe to reform or improve their character rather than just seeking revenge or retribution against them. I've been going through the course that you put on 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 Marcus Aurelius, which has been really great. I'd, I'd highly recommend it to anyone listening interested in more. In one of the answers to a, a quiz question, one of the many that I that I missed was around what philosopher Socrates wrote of the most in in meditations, and I was really surprised that it was Socrates. I wasn't aware of that much of a connection between Socrates and Stoicism. The philosopher that Marcus Aurelius wrote about the most in the meditations, Socrates is what I would say the three that he writes about the most are Epictetus, Heraclitus, and and Socrates. There's a big connection. I I mean, maybe I can just rattle this off briefly, but we have an ancient source that says that the Stoics were a Socratic sect of philosophy. Epictetus, in particular, tells his students over and over again that they should emulate Socrates as their main role model. Most of the arguments for the central ethical doctrines of Stoicism are derived from Socrates. 
The Stoics also traced their lineage back through the Cynics to Socrates and saw themselves as a, a successor of his original teachings. So they they very much stand in the Socrates. It's not entirely clear to what extent or if all of the, the Stoics viewed themselves as standing in the Socratic tradition, but I, I'm of the opinion that they did, they did. There are different forms of late imperial Stoicism. There's one author, not a lot of people know this, bit of obscure Stoic trivia for you. There's one author that says there were three branches of the Stoic school. So the, the Athenian school ended, and then the last three heads of it, Diogenes, Antipater, and Panatius, they were the last three successive heads of the Stoic school before it kind of disappears as a formal institution in Athens. But then there were three branches of Stoicism that were named after those last three heads of the school. And unfortunately, we don't know enough about them to really distinguish them. But Seneca, it seems to me, clearly looks like he's doing a different flavor of Stoicism from Marcus and Epictetus, who I would potentially make an argument for lumping together. And there's a clue to this in that Seneca actually tells us at one point who his favorite philosophers are. And he says there's a couple of Roman Stoics, Cleanthes and Zeno, two of the founders of the Stoic school, Socrates, and then he names Plato, which is kind of surprising. Epictetus, you can infer that his favorite philosophers are Diogenes the Cynic and Socrates, because he mentions them over and over and over again more than anyone else. So I think that at the very least, there's a branch of Stoicism that's more into this kind of old school cynic philosophy approach, which Epictetus and maybe Marcus Aurelius were into. And then there's this more kind of urbane Stoicism, Stoicism light or whatever that Seneca was into, which was more, we call it middle Stoicism, and it derives more from Panatius. I think it's safe to say, and it combined Stoic ideas more with Aristotelianism and, and Plato. Nevertheless, Seneca also says that one of his favourite philosophers is, is Socrates. So for maybe for all of those branches, perhaps they thought that Socrates was their godfather or their great granddaddy. Although I think some of them were more into Diogenes the Cynic than others. Speaking of, of Aristotle, I've heard you describe Stoicism as moral wisdom, kind of excellence of character. What do you see kind of the similarities and differences between Aristotle's ethics and, and Stoicism? Well, that's a relatively easy one. I mean, Aristotle's philosophy is pretty complex. Actually, that's one of the differences, come to think of it. Stoicism is more of a philosophy for the people. Aristotle's philosophy, although it had a huge influence on medieval Christianity, is quite an obscure philosophy. In some regards, quite a technical philosophy. I don't think it's as readily accessible. There have been attempts over the past few years. When Stoicism became trendy, like 15 years ago or whatever it was now, this sounds like a terrible kind of hipster thing to say. You know, I was into this band before they became cool. But when I started getting into Stoicism, it was still a really obscure thing that nobody cared about. And then I was surprised to see it suddenly become kind of popular and trendy. But I remember when that happened, saying to people, I reckon the same thing will happen with Aristotelianism and Epicureanism and stuff, but it never did. And now I think maybe there are reasons uh, I can see why that might be the case. There were kind of attempts, there are popular books on Aristotelianism as a way of life, similar to the kind of pop philosophy books that we got on Stoicism, but they didn't really take off because 
two reasons. Aristotle's philosophy is a bit is is less kind of engaging. It doesn't have a book like the Meditations that people love to read. The Nicomachean Ethics is pretty cool, but it's it's not like the Meditations. It's not as engaging. It's not as accessible for the general public. And also to come more back to your question. The other difference is that Aristotle's philosophy is more of a kind of common sense, kind of conservative philosophy in a way. It's a, you know, it's more of a reflection of moral assumptions that might be familiar to people. So Aristotle says the goal of life is to cultivate virtue. Most of the ancient schools of philosophy agreed on that. But he said you also need a balance or a mixture, a combination of external goods like health, wealth, reputation, and stuff like that, those those play a part in having the good life. And a lot of people would say, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, you need a little bit of wisdom, need a little bit of cash, you, you, know, you need a decent job and stuff like that if you're going to have a happy life. The Stoics said, no, we disagree with you. We're going to adopt a hard line that says none of those things are directly relevant to the good life. Like, which sounds like a radical, extreme thing to say, but that's partly why people are drawn to it. They go, tell us something we don't know, Aristotle. And then the Stoics come along and say, we're going to tell you something that's going to shock you. We don't think you need money to be happy at all. We don't think you need friends to be happy. As long as you have sufficient wisdom and strength of character. And people say, oh, I can't imagine that's inconceivable. But then Socrates, the, the Stoics will often point to historical examples and they'll say, Socrates didn't have much money and he had friends, but he was also persecuted by his enemies that put him on trial and slandered and defamed him in in public. And actually, if you take all those things away, the Stoics would say Socrates wouldn't have been Socrates. He flourished and became the hero that he was in part because he suffered poverty and persecution they like also to talk about the the mythological exemplar, Hercules. And Epictetus puts it very bluntly. He said if Hercules had just laid in bed, snuggling under the covers, and he hadn't gone out and fought tyrants and monsters and stuff like that, he wouldn't have been worthy of the name Hercules. He, he wouldn't have been a hero. Like, he wouldn't have achieved anything admirable in his life. You can't call that the good life, my Epictetus says to his students. So Stoics want to adopt this paradoxical and more radical position that says, actually, ultimately, the only thing that really matters is the way that you deal with your possessions and your circumstances. Whereas Aristotle wants to hang on to this more kind of familiar common sense view that you, you everybody wants to have a, a kind of mixture or balance of these things. But that makes Aristotle's philosophy a little bit boring by comparison. It's not as sexy or exciting. Like you, you feel like he's just telling you something you already know. And then the other thing that Aristotle says is that there's a, a middle way between extremes. The goal is moderation. So he thinks that you can define virtue as being the middle path between uh, two extremes. And the Stoics don't agree with that. They think that's an an overly simplistic view. They think you need to understand the nature of an activity in order to really understand what amount of it would be appropriate. You can't just go, it's somewhere in the middle. uh, That doesn't really tell you all that much of value. And a good example of where we see that in practice is that Aristotle thinks a moderate amount of anger might be okay, which is a very common view that people have today when we discuss the psychology of anger. People say maybe maybe a little bit of anger like, might be quite useful. 
the I call it the motivational theory of anger. It might motivate you if you're angry to do some things like uh, to improve society or whatever. And I guess it could do, perhaps, if you're lucky. But you're taking a gamble because the Stoics quite rightly point out that anger, certainly if we understand it from a particular point of view, a cognitive point of view, anger consists of certain beliefs and attitudes about the importance or the value of external things that you find objectionable. And the Stoics think anger truly is based on a mistaken value judgment. Right? So they believe that all anger is wrong because all anger places far too much value on external things that are beyond our direct control and not enough importance on our own character or way of responding. So they think it doesn't make sense just to say a middling amount of anger would be okay. That's like a middling amount of ignorance or error or insanity or something. You, you, you need to kind of get rid of the error of judgment that anger is based on. And the Stoics would also quite rightly say that when we're angry, it impairs our thinking. We're rubbish at problem solving when we're angry. The hardest problems to solve, I mean, fixing a, a leaking tap or something like that is a problem. But doing something like that is relatively simple compared to fixing a broken relationship, right? Like social problems, interpersonal problems, political problems are far more complicated and require much more advanced and sophisticated problem-solving skills. So if you can't even fix a broken tap when you're angry, as many people find a struggle, what are the chances you're going to fix a broken relationship or a broken society when you do it through the lens of anger? No chance. <laughs> because as the Stoics rightly said, anger is kind of temporary madness. So now in, in modern psychology, we can kind of quantify that and we can say, look, we could list a whole barrage of cognitive biases that people experience when they're angry. So one would be that people who are angry are known to underestimate risk, which is dangerous. And uh, during a pandemic, for example, if people underestimate risk, well, it's not helpful for public health, potentially, like if anger leads them to make that mistake. They're more likely to express confidence about other people's motives like, so that guy's definitely out to get me. Well, you don't really know for sure. If you're relaxed and you're angry, you go, that guy seemed like he was out to get me, but who knows what he's thinking? I can't read his mind. Like you would say if you were laid back and thinking rationally, but someone who's angry can read his mind or they believe that he believes that he can. So we all become expert mind readers when we're angry and we generalize and we stereotype and we jump to premature conclusions and we get all the thinking errors come out. So we become incredibly stupid, basically. The Stoics describe that as temporary madness. And so you wouldn't want that really in a society if you're, you're dealing with complex social problems, uh, even in a, a moderate amount. And as Seneca rightly points out in relation to the Aristotelian theory, anger is a slippery slope. You know, it often starts out as a moderate amount of anger and quickly escalates. And it's kind of known for that. Anger very quickly spirals out of control and, and goes from being moderate to being quite extreme. And we see it every day all over the news and the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Based on your comment around stoicism and its popularity today, it seems most people are aware of kind of the dichotomy of control Maybe what would you say are some of the lesser known practices and, and concepts that we should maybe be discussing more? Well, I mean, I don't know if they even are aware of that. Like people talk a lot about stoicism, but they say often very little about the actual practices, weirdly. And then people say we want the practical stuff and like, they don't tend to talk about the practical side much. And there's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of lack of knowledge about what the practical side of stoicism is. 
for, I guess, for a number of reasons. The first book I wrote in Stoicism is called The Philosophy of CBT. And in it, I listed all the psychological techniques that I could identify. And, you know, roughly, I, I listed 18 there. I guess if I was to draw that list up again, it might be more like about 20, perhaps. So there's a lot of distinct psychological practices that I found. Sto- too many for me to name right now, but I can name some of them. There are ones that people are familiar with, maybe who have kind of delved deeper into the subject. The Stoics also very often, they'll do things like, for example, Epictetus tells his students when they're getting angry or upset to do what we call a timeout strategy today and to postpone responding to a situation until their emotions have abated naturally. And there's a bit of debate about that because it can turn into an avoidance strategy. Like some psychological strategies are kind of hit and miss or they have to be done in the right kind of way. But that strategy I believe in, some people aren't as keen on it, as long as it doesn't turn into a kind of pathological avoidance. I think taking a time out until you've calmed down and then going back and addressing a situation is a very sensible way of responding, especially if it's anger that you're dealing with. So that that's a strategy that was well known in, in other schools of ancient philosophy as well. But certainly the Epictetus tells his students to do that. The technique of cognitive distancing, as we call it today, is pervasive in Stoicism. I think it's the most important psychological technique in Stoicism. It takes a number of different forms, but I'll give you one example. It's kind of well-known, but I don't think people see the implications of it. Epictetus tells his students, oh, and by the way, the, the Stoics are pretty clear sometimes about these techniques. Like Epictetus in particular often just literally tells his students, say this to yourself. He's prescribing really specific verbal strategies to them, like that you could, you know, you can just draw a, a, a little shopping list of if you like. So it's not like they're obscure; like it's it's pretty straightforward what he's telling them to do. So he says, when you notice a troubling thought, say to yourself, "You are simply an impression and not at all the thing that you claim to represent." And that condenses several things. So, so literally, that's what they used to say to themselves. They're to Speak, first of all, apostrophize that to speak to their thought. So say I'm sitting there going about my business happily and suddenly I think, oh, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. I think I'll go and eat worms. That's a nursery rhyme, by the way. But it's the kind of thing that people say if they're feeling uh, very depressed. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. I might take a step back and go, you're just a thought and not at all the thing that you claim to represent. You're just one among many possible ways of looking at other people and what they might think of me. That's also that's just sweeping generalization, right? So this is the map. It's not the territory. It's just a mental representation. Like it's, inherently, it's going to be abstract and generalized, right? It's just, what, it's just a, a set of lenses. It's like a set of colored glasses through which I'm looking. And so rather than looking through those glasses and go, that house is pink, that guy's pink, that dog's pink, if I'm looking through pink lenses, it would be like saying, you're just a pair of pink lenses. The lenses are pink. Right? You're just a thought and not at all the thing that you claim to represent. That, my friend, is cognitive distancing because he's now taking a step back and looking at the thought rather than looking through the thought. He's looking at the filter rather than using the filter and looking at external events through it. But the technique is very simply just to say that sentence. It's pretty prescriptive. And also it's the fact he's talking to the thought now posits the thought as an object right? There's two parts to that technique. One, he's looking at the thought as if it's an object, almost as if you're describing someone else's thinking in a detached way. And then also the thing that he's saying to it is, you're just a mental representation. I shouldn't confuse you with external events. 
Right. So this is a subtle technique, right? But uh, I'm explaining it because it's we know in modern psychotherapy, we have very similar techniques to that that use in, in third wave as CBT, as we can call it, state-of-the-art CBT. We know that these techniques are very effective, very simple, and they're also effective for quite a wide variety of different emotional problems. That's something. Another thing that the Stoics do is there's a kind of cost-benefit analysis that they do in a weird way. So like in therapy, we we would get clients to think about the consequences of certain behaviors or the consequences of certain attitudes or ways of thinking. So it could be cognitions, i.e. your thinking, or it could be your behavior, it's cognitive behavioral. And so usually we'll say, like, suppose you avoid the things that make you anxious. Imagine what the consequence would be if you kept doing that like tomorrow, next week, and then in the long term, like years and years from now, where would it lead you? And then suppose you did the opposite and you patiently taught yourself to face the things that you're afraid of, what the consequence is going to be in the short term, and then what the consequence is going to be weeks and months from now if you persevered with that. So you imagine that as a kind of fork in the road because those two paths are going to get further and further and further apart over time. So by picturing the consequences, we can kind of motivate ourselves. It's a bit that, so the Stoics will, will say to themselves... To picture the consequences very, and this is a very simplistic formula, right? So I guess we tell people to understand this if they knew a bit more about the philosophy. But Galen, apparently in reference to earlier Stoic writings, Galen is Marcus Aurelius's court physician. He says each morning you should ask yourself, what would happen if you allow yourself to be guided by unhealthy passions like anger versus what would happen if you are guided by reason and virtue like self-discipline and patience and endurance and where would those two paths lead you over time. And so by doing that, you can help motivate yourself to make a transition. We use that technique today to motivate people to make changes that might be uncomfortable at first, but then beneficial for them in, in the longer term. But the Stoics also say something very similar to this that they sum up very neatly in a slogan. They say, fear does us more harm than the things that we're frightened of. Or... Anger does us more harm than the things that we're angry about. Or you could even flip that around, although I'm not aware of them ever having said this, but they they could flip it around and say that self-discipline or moderation do us more good than the things that we crave, which would be a kind of like inverting it a bit and applying it to desire. This would also be valid according to the Stoics. But there, when they're using it, they're not actually referring so much to the consequences of the behavior, but they're referring to a deeper benefit that we get from it. They would say that the things that we're frightened of, the things that we're angry about, might harm our property, they might harm our reputation, they might harm our bodies, they might even kill us. But they're not going to harm our character, anger, and fear and craving damage our moral character. And so the, for the Stoics, that's an intrinsically more serious outcome than merely being deprived of reputation or, or property. So they want to say, you need to realize that these two things are incommensurate. Like the passions, the vices do us far more intrinsic harm than the, these external things that we're, we're getting all worked up about. And so that this is a technique that's very important to them in terms of motivation that they mention it a number of times. I've heard you describe Stoicism as a philosophy of love. Would you mind speaking more on that? 
is a philosophy of love. I've said that in the past, and sometimes when I say it, people have thought I was joking. They thought it seemed like a crazy thing to say. And actually, the the reason I said it first was that I, I haven't studied Spinoza for a while, but I used to be really into Spinoza. And some people say Spinoza is kind of like, you know, one author, one scholar called Spinoza, more stoic than the Stoics. So Spinoza is an author who arguably, although he doesn't mention the Stoics favorably, seems to be saying a lot of things that are very similar to them. And Spinoza's philosophy much more explicitly is framed as the intellectual love of God. So this kind of spiritual philanthropic love that he's cultivating by or this kind of rational therapy of the passions that he describes. And that was the thing that kind of made me look at the Stoics through that lens and say, oh, the Stoics not doing the same thing. And then I realized, yeah, actually, they, they really obviously are. And then over the years, although at first people thought I was crazy for saying this, I've kind of completely persuaded myself of this now. And it, it, it seems just obvious to me. I go, of course, that's what they say. At the beginning of the meditations, maybe is the clearest example of this, where Marcus Aurelius is talking about Sextus Chirinea, one of his Stoic teachers. Marcus describes him, so he describes the Stoic ideal as exemplified by this teacher as being to be free from passions, by which he means irrational, unhealthy, excessive passions, to be free from the unhealthy passions and yet full of love. And the word he uses is a technical term in Stoic philosophy, it's philostorgia, which is hard to translate. It's usually translated as natural affection or sometimes as familial affection. It's the kind of warmth or affection that parents would have to their children or that siblings would have for one another potentially or close family members might have for for one another. But the Stoics think we can extend this warmth or affection to other people as well potentially and that we should do that and cultivate a kind of brotherly love. You could say first orgia is similar to brotherly love. We should extend this feeling to the rest of mankind theoretically, insofar as they're all capable in principle of wisdom and virtue. So Stoicism is one of the main inspirations for and precursors of early Christian ethics. And uh, no one ever says that Christianity is cold-hearted and unemotional, but Christianity is heavily influenced by Stoicism. One author, one scholar again, who these guys say things more radical than I do, like one scholar again said that St. Paul was a crypto-Stoic, like, but certainly uh, St. Paul seems to kind of be influenced by Stoicism. There's a passage in the Acts of the Apostles where he actually goes to the Areopagus down the road where, from where I am at the moment in Athens and speaks to Stoics. The Stoics have a, a cameo in the Acts of the Apostles. They're actually in there. A number of the church fathers we know studied Stoicism before they converted to Christianity. So this kind of brotherly love side of Christianity is in Stoicism and it comes from Stoicism into Christianity. But the other terms the Stoics use are natural affection, philostorgia, cosmopolitanism. So viewing everyone, regardless of race or gender or nationality, as being part of a single world community. The virtue of the Kaiosune. Part of the reason that people don't realize this is when we talk about the four, everyone kind of knows these four virtues in Stoicism, right? The four cardinal virtues, wisdom, justice, courage, and self-discipline. The word for justice is the Kaiosune, which that's not a great translation of it. In the Victorian era, sometimes it was just translated as righteousness. A mother has the Kaiosune towards her children, 
it would be better translated as social virtue. And the Stoics specifically tell us that by this word, they mean also fairness and kindness or wanting to help other people, which is they view as being the opposite of anger. So we don't normally think of justice as consisting of kindness or benevolence. And so because maybe because this kind of clunky translation, it, that it's, there's a problem with translation that slices the reference to kindness and benevolence and warmth and affection out of our perception of stoicism. But in the Greek, I think it's more apparent to them that that's what they're talking about. And so Marcus Aurelius in the Meditations talks about these things on virtually every page. And he also talks a lot about the opposite. He talks about not being alienated from the rest of mankind and viewing them as your brothers and wanting to live in harmony, even with your enemies, he says. Which, by the way, to introduce another angle on a whole discussion, when we read the Meditations, the Meditations is a very strange book and it's written in a peculiarly anonymous fashion. Although in book one, he talks a lot about his personal life and his tutors and family members, throughout the rest of the book, unlike most diaries and journals, he doesn't really say very many specific things about the situations that he's struggling with. The next passage at the beginning of book two, he says, it's probably the most famous passage from the book, right? He says, every morning when you wake up, tell yourself you're going to be meddlesome, treacherous, deceitful people. And when people read that, they think, that sounds like my mother-in-law. Or it sounds like that guy that works at the desk across from me in the office, right? Like, that's my old boss, right? They think, they because we project ourselves into it because it's artfully vague. But Marcus never mentions who these people are that he's talking about for some strange reason. You know, that allows us to kind of read our, our own meaning into it. But he wrote the meditations on the Danube, not at Rome. Like he wrote it in Austria and Serbia and along the Danube frontier, surrounded by foreigners, foreign auxiliary units, uh, foreign leaders that were coming to him as part of embassies that were sent to negotiate peace. And so when he's talking about his relationship with other people and viewing them as his kin and not being alienated from them, it should be striking that a Roman emperor is saying that while he's surrounded by non-Romans, foreigners. So you've done a, a lot of, obviously, research on Marcus Aurelius. I heard that you're working on a graphic novel and another kind of more biographical type of project on Marcus Aurelius to s speculate a bit. But is there anything kind of in meditations, if you were able to pull up a bar stool next to Marcus Aurelius that you wish you could have him kind of expound upon a bit? Yeah, the thing that really bugs me at the moment, I don't know that it's a specific thing in the meditations. I'd like to know more about his relationship with his mother. I want to know, well, I'll tell you, this is a really obscure, very specific thing. But he says at one point that he wishes he could communicate in a plain, unaffected style, like a letter that was written by Genius Rusticus from Sinuessa on the Italian coast to his mother. And I want to know what's going on there. Is he suggesting that his main Stoic tutor, Genius Rusticus, was friends with his mother? And in that case, were they friends before he became Marcus's tutor? I'd love to know. And in that case, I'd like to know, was it Marcus's mother that suggested that a Stoic should become his tutor? And I was, was, it, was Marcus's mother into Stoicism? And was she the one that kind of introduced him to the, the philosophy by assigning this guy to be his, his tutor? We'll never know. So I'd like to know more about that from my perspective as an amateur historian. 
but there's a lot of other things about the the meditations that I'd like to know. Also, in terms of analysing the and understanding the text, this is going to really annoy people, right? That's all I'm going to enjoy saying. It. <laughs> so I won't annoy them, but they'll be like, "Oh, yeah." It sh- this will shock people a bit. We have no idea how much of the meditations is actually written by Marcus Aurelius, right? So clearly, it contains many quotes from other authors. And I'd like to know, just for like, just a really basic thing: how many of these things are actually just quotes from Epictetus? Because we only have half of Epictetus's books. But Marcus says that he received a copy of notes from Epictetus. We assume that the, he means he got a copy of the discourses. It seems that way, and he quotes from what we call the discourses of Epictetus. But then he also quotes other things that he attributes to Epictetus that are not in those books. And so it's obviously tempting to assume that Marcus had read all eight volumes, of which we only have four. Like in ancient writing, they don't normally use quotation marks, or, well, they don't use quotation marks, they don't have them. And they often don't even say that something's a quote. So I, for all we know, maybe loads of the passages in the meditations are just quotes from Epictetus or quotes from Chrysippus or something else that he just hasn't bothered attributing. So that just in terms of understanding the history of the philosophy, that, that would clear up a lot of confusion if Marcus could explain which bits were his own ideas. Definitely. Fascinating. In the process of writing and researching how to think like a Roman emperor, is there anything that comes to mind that really kind of altered the way you think about Stoicism or life? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if I can think of good examples right now, but I know that there were lots of things that changed. Actually, doing the graphic novel, there's an odd thing that, there are lots of little things, but lots of little historical details that have become clearer about. But there's one big thematic thing that really struck me. And I guess people are maybe, usually when you have a realization, it's something that was already there in front of you all along, and it suddenly just pops into the foreground and you go, yeah, like, you know, maybe I should take this more seriously. So Marcus talks a lot about the contemplation of death in the meditations, and maybe he he talks about it more than other Stoic authors. He certainly seems to talk about it more than Epictetus does. So some people have said, was he particularly interested in contemplating his own death? Was this a concern for him or a practice that he thought was important? If we visualize Marcus Aurelius's life, like writing the graphic novel, if we were to see it on the movie screen, I think people would realize, because again, the text seems abstract, it's anonymous. If we saw the guy that was actually writing, if we could be a fly in the wall, I think one of the things that we would realize that emerges from the graphic novel is that to exaggerate slightly for the sake of making the point, Marcus Aurelius must have woken up every morning and opened his eyes and thought, shit, am I still alive? Because people were dropping like flies around him for 15 years from the plague. Roman legions were massacred by any tribal hordes, what they would call barbarian hordes, suddenly overwhelming the, the frontier. People were being assassinated Many Roman emperors were assassinated. There was a civil war against him. He had chronic health problems throughout most of his adult life. Um, And in the ancient world, you know, if you've got a fever or something like that, you might think maybe this is it. My numbers might be up because we don't really know what causes most diseases or how to cure them and stuff. It's like there's a a lot of potluck in in ancient medicine. So I, I think everyone knows Marcus had 14 
children and half of them died before he did. So he, he lost many of his friends. The stuff that he says, again, about contemplating his own mortality and the transience of things in the meditations, when you if you pictured it on the big screen, as it were, if you could be a fly in the wall, it becomes much more obvious that this is a concrete issue for him. We You'd suddenly realise how incredibly sheltered our modern lives typically are by comparison to his and it, how it must have really this is a guy who must have genuinely thought I'm not I'm really not sure if I'm going to be here tomorrow morning there's like you know one of my best friends just died of the plague you know I'm coughing up blood <laughs> like but he carried on he must have been it's not an abstract idea he must have really been reconciled to the possibility that he could have dropped dead been assassinated I contracted plague or whatever at any moment. Another example of that actually was his co-emperor, Lucius Verus. Obviously seems to have been intended to succeed him, I think. He was nine years younger than Marcus. He married Marcus's daughter. So though we call him his adoptive brother, he was kind of more like a son-in-law to him. He reigned alongside Marcus as co-emperor. But he died before Marcus did, 11 years before Marcus did. So Marcus would have looked at this guy that was very close to him and thought, geez, he was like a son to me. Like he was, We were assuming he was going to succeed me. Like, and he's dropped dead of a seizure or a plague or something like that. What comes out of it is that it's not an abstract idea to him. Although the Stoics think we should meditate on this anyway, Marcus, it's like Marcus can't avoid contemplating his own death. It's in his face every day. Maybe a way to close, the final chapter of your book, in my opinion, is worth the price alone. I absolutely love that. What kind of gave you the insight to close the book out and, and maybe kind of what are the Stoics' thoughts on practicing death? The, the reason that I did that was when I was writing his book, you know, we said, let's write a biography in a sense of Marcus Aurelius. So we'll have vignettes, like episodes in his life in chronological order. And then I thought, the part of Marx's life that most interests me is his education. But it's like the training montage in a movie. So it's, that shouldn't be like the beginning. That shouldn't be like the first scene. That has to come a little bit later, right? I thought it's kind of, it's not an exciting way to start the book. So that bothered me when I was writing it. And I thought, well, we need to start with something more dramatic. And then I thought, well, there's an easy way of doing that, which is actually to start with his death. And then we can go back and go through the events of his life in chronological order. So that allows us to start with something really dramatic. And like we use it as a, what's called a framing story. Why, and we can draw the, the reader in more. Otherwise, we have to start with this kind of relatively unexciting bit where he grows up, like the imperial household. And, you know, like it's, it's, there's not as much to engage the, the reader or draw them in there, although it is interesting. So we did that. And, and then as I was writing, I thought, that's good. Like I've solved one problem, but I've created another problem, which is now I don't know how I'm going to end the book, right? Because he should die at the end, but he's already died at the beginning. What happens then? It just kind of fizzles out. Like he he, he grows old and then and then we just stop. The last stage of his life, we don't know that much about. The second Marcomannic War, actually, we don't know a great deal about what went on then. And so it, it doesn't really give good material for a, a final chapter to conclude. And so I started writing the book and I kind of crossed my fingers and I thought, hopefully I'll figure out a solution to this while I'm in the middle of writing the book. And luckily I thought, what am I going to do? I said, because he can't, he's already died at the beginning. He can't die again at the end. And then I thought, but maybe he could die again. <laughs> I thought, why can't he? Why do we have to follow these rules? Like he could die. And I thought, well, what if we tell the same story, but from a different perspective? 
thought, what other perspectives are there? But we could do it from the first-person perspective. And I thought, well, that'd be cool if we did that on the audiobook. It's going to sound like a guided meditation. And then I thought, but I can't do that because it would be a guided meditation about dying. <laughs> That's going to freak everyone out. It's going to be too much for people. Like, And I thought, well, there's certainly there's loads of stuff that we could do because as he's dying, we could imagine that he would be thinking all of the stuff that he told us that he thinks about death, which he's written about extensively in the meditations. He's told us what he's probably going to be thinking as he dies. He's prepared for it. So it's reasonable to assume that's what he's going to be thinking as he dies. He's kind of written all down for us. So I thought we could do this. It's eminently doable, but is it going to freak people out that we changed from third person to first person? I think that freaked out two people so far that have read it. Like everyone else is like, yeah, whatever. Because it's an odd thing to do. And then I thought, is it going to be too much for people if it's a guided med- meditation about where you're accompanying this guy in the process of dying? And I thought, well, let's try it and see. And we did it. And, and people often say that's their favorite part of the book. So it doesn't seem to have been too much for them at all. Like they, I guess they were looking for something that was quite radical like that. It was a kind of bold move, if I say so myself, but it paid off because people hadn't experienced something quite like that before maybe. And also it was kind of easy to write because despite the fact a couple of people got in touch with me and said they didn't like the last chapter and they were like, that Marcus Aurelius would have never said those things. As one reviewer correctly pointed out, almost all of the things, like 95% of the things in the last chapter are just direct quotes or paraphrases from the meditations. Like we just shuffled them around and put them in a different order so they... They, there's a continuous flow to them. Um, so that's how that was written. And also I thought, well, what am I going to end on? And I thought, well, the, the contemplation of death in Stoicism actually brings together a lot of themes. And it is, in a sense, the ultimate Stoic meditation. It's certainly very fundamental to Stoicism. It's very pervasive in Stoicism. It really combines a lot of the other themes very neatly. So that's what we decided to do. And I, I think it, it worked out okay. Yeah, glad you did. I thought it was a beautiful way to end the book. Yeah, it was great. Well, this has been a great conversation. Where can listeners go to learn more about your work? They can just uh, find everything on my website, which is just donaldrobertson.name. So instead of .com, it's N-A-M-E dot name, donaldrobertson.name. And everything, e-learning courses, blog articles, videos, and everything, they can, social media links and everything are all on there. All right, great. Donald Robertson, thank you so much for your time. It has been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, Be wise and be well.